based on the title of the course is based on this passage, this verse, 1 Timothy 4.16. Keep a close watch on yourself and on all the teaching. So watch your life means watch what you do, what you say, the actions uh, that you take, basically your character and the resulting behavior that comes out of your character. And then watch your doctrine means watch your beliefs. Be careful about what you believe. Don't fall into errors and that sort of thing. So the dates and times are uh, today through November 20. Except for October 9, I'll be gone. So it's a total of 10 weeks. It's, uh, of course, here at our church also being live streamed and recorded. It's a selected summary of this course, of the Westminster Confession of Faith and, and this book I'll mention. If you want the full course, it's actually on uh, the internet. It's on a place called Sermon Audio if you find our church and then search uh, for my name or search for uh, Westminster Confession of Faith and, and the course is there. So we're basing the um, life part, watch your life part, on a book called Disciplines of a Godly Man. It's on the bottom of the front page there, your green handout. The Disciplines of a Godly Man by Pastor R. Kent Hughes. Then we're basing the teaching course, the teaching part, what we believe, our doctrine, of course, on the Westminster Confession of Faith. It is the uh, doctrinal standard of our church, the Orthodox Presbyterian denomination. And then I recommend two commentaries on the confession. They're also printed on the front page. I'm just going over your front page. So one is an older one that we've always um, recommended here by G.I. Williamson, Presbyterian Reform Publishing. It's called the Westminster Confession of Faith for Study Classes. And a newer one uh, published in 2014 by an Orthodox Presbyterian minister, Reverend Dr. Chad Van Dixhorn, Confessing the Faith, a Reader's Guide to the Westminster Confession of Faith. Then I also recommend a scripture index. If you go to the website opc.org and click on down through the instructions on the bottom of your page, a scripture index means, let's say you're studying a certain book of the Bible and you wonder, was that ever referenced by the Westminster Confession authors and there? You can go to the list of what Bible passages there are and link to what's in the confession. It's kind of the opposite of what you have now if you have a copy of the Westminster Confession with the scripture proofs in the bottom. You're reading through the standard, you wonder where they got that from in the Bible. The opposite way, if you're reading through the Bible and you wonder what the confession might say on that, you can do it backwards. So the last uh, housekeeping matter is on the bottom of your front page there. There's an excellent app if you have a smartphone. It's called Creeds and Confession, Christian Creeds and Confessions. And the app looks like this. Uh, I copied a picture of the uh, icon on the bottom of your page so that you could find it. What's nice about this is it's searchable. So if you're studying the topic of uh, goodness, uh, the goodness of God, you you can type in the word goodness and it'll show you not just in the Westminster Confession, larger catechism and shorter catechism, but it'll also show you the Heidelberg Catechism, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, Uh, So it's Christian creeds and confessions that's searchable. So um, the last thing I'll say before we jump in is to look at your chart on the front, on the middle of the top there. This is what I hope to do, is to take two chapters ordinarily of the Watch Your Life part from the Disciplines of a Godly Man book and basically just present those in a selected summary, quickly touching on the topic. 
and then also cover three chapters of the Westminster Confession of Faith, just introducing the topic to you. Obviously, this is a summary and an overview, so I'll, I'll start with the overview and then offer uh, some highlights. So, let's jump in. We're on Disciplines of a Godly Man, uh, chapter one, and I first have an introduction to what the uh, book is about, and then we'll go through uh, chapter one. And I recognize there's not a whole lot in your packet about this. The, the packet typically has a lot for the doctrinal parts. It's a summary of each of the chapters. The only page you really have for the Disciplines of Godly Man is a list of where we are and, and a chart that if, when we get to the end, you want to evaluate yourself. You say, am I okay or not okay in that area? Am I three worst? And then what actions I would like to take about that. So we're going to do an intro now and then chapter one on godliness, chapter two on purity. So here's the intro. <clears throat> this, this book is on the category of watching your life, your life being the, the way that a Christian should live. And what way is that? Like Christ, uh, honorable life, a life of character. So let's um, think of this word character now. In Romans 5, verses 3 through 5, we read this. And listen for the word character. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character. And character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because... God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Romans 5, 3 to 5. So the word character there, it references having character or possessing character, being a person who is mature or having the quality of having stood the test, tested, um, genuine, approved, experienced. So one aspect of the Christian life is developing that character. Um, living by experiences and, and through those experiences, letting them sharpen you. A person of character will not be blue if it's foggy and happy if it's sunny, but rather have that internal ballast. So after uh, Paul taught in the Jewish synagogue in a city called Thessalonica for three weeks, and people were converted the Jews in that area were jealous of Paul. And the Jews formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. Paul was sent away by night to a city called Berea, and as soon as he arrived, he went into the synagogue. What reaction would you experience? What would you expect that he would experience? Same reaction, right? A mob would form. But instead, we read this in Acts 17:11. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So here we have another word giving another angle on what we're talking about. We had character, now we have the word noble. It means uh, well-born or of good birth, uh, thoroughbred, we might say, in our language. So there's another aspect then of character of the way we're supposed to live as Christians is our willingness to hear people out and consider what they say. Isn't that the dynamic of the more noble Jews, that they were willing to hear Paul out with a new idea and what he had to say? People who are kind of like we expect judges to be, to hear the case from both sides. We are to cons consistently be open and available to hear people out. So it's another aspect of character. Then another aspect is this term, man of God. Man of God. 
Uh, Paul uses it, uh, so I'll introduce this. So after writing about the love of money and wandering away from the faith, Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 11 to 12. But as for you, O man of God, so here's Paul calling Timothy man of God. As for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. 1 Timothy 6, 11 and 12. So Paul uses this phrase, man of God. And what he means is the same thing we've been talking about. A man of character, a thoroughbred, someone who's willing to hear others out. So Paul, as a student of the Old Testament, knew that the phrase man of God refers to God-called men. That the men whom God called, those who are voice boxes for God, the prophets, for example, men called to do God's work. So it's not just a man, it's a man of God. So it's found, I gave myself a timer to move on to the next chapter. I'll finish my thought and then move on. I'm going to reset it here. So the man of God idea... So we talked about character, we talked about noble or being a thoroughbred, and then this third aspect is being a man of God. Um, the word, the, the phrase, man of God, is found 71 times in the Old Testament. So when Paul picks it up, he's talking about a long history of this having deep meaning uh, with reference to prophets, uh, leaders, priests, and, and so on. Uh, David was called a man of God, Elijah, Samuel. And so when Paul brings it into the New Testament, says to Timothy, O man of God, flee these things, do these things, he's talking about his character. All right, uh, so I should move on as I promised I would. I'm going to uh, the intro. That was, a, that was the intro, now I'm going to chapter one of Disciplines of the Godly Man book. And so I want to introduce the way that our author, Pastor Hughes, R. Kent Hughes, um, by the way, he, he was a um, pastor at a church in Illinois, northern Illinois. It's called College Church. And he retired, I would say, 10 years ago, something like that. I believe he's still living. <clears throat> so he introduced this concept of why is the book called Disciplines of a Godly Man? So that the introduction, we talked about character a little bit, but now in the... Um, in the first chapter, he talks about um, what's needed for us. You'll see it on your, on your chart there, godliness. Godliness could be described in, in another angle as discipline. Uh, godly people are disciplined. So he talks about discipline as like the overarching title of the book, and then this, his first chapter, he says this in page 11 of his book, personal discipline is the indispensable key for accomplishing anything in this life. And then he says in, in, on page 12, discipline is the mother and handmaiden of what we call genius. And he gives some examples. Uh, example from uh, sports. Uh, Mike Singletary. Sorry, I know he's a bear. This is Green Bay Packer country. Um, but the example holds. He was an all-pro um, player of the year. When he would watch films, you know how football players go back and they watch the films of previous games? in order to study themselves, in order to study the opponents, their teammates, and so on, he would watch game films, each game, 50 to 60 times. He would pause on certain important plays, and he would take three hours to watch maybe 20, 30 plays again and again and again. The result of his discipline in that was he didn't just know the opponent's plays. He knew their tendency. 
on this sort of play, they go to the right. He knew that. So Singletary's, he writes this in his, uh, page 12 in his book, Singletary's legendary success is testimony to his remarkably disciplined life. So this is an example from sports. There's examples from great writers of history. He references Ernest Hemingway. You might remember he was an alcoholic, so we don't necessarily, uh, you know, hold him up as an example for Christians, but only on this narrow point of uh, being disciplined. As a writer, he was very disciplined. He would spend hours polishing one sentence. Um, He would spend time searching for the right word. He once rewrote a conclusion 17 times. Near the end of his life, he was very rich, but still, every day he would write from 6.30 a.m. to noon standing up and he would mark his production on a chart. He would ordinarily write 500 words a day. It's about two pages. Now, you might not be impressed by that, but if you're not impressed by that, you're not a writer. (laughs) It's really difficult to produce that much. Hemingway's discipline transformed the way the English-speaking world expressed themselves, according to our author, Pastor Hughes. Another example from the writing world is Dylan Thomas. Um... He's born in Wales in 1914. He's the author of poems such as Fern Hill, Do Not Go Gentle Into That Good Night. Maybe that's the one you'll recognize. And Death Shall Have No Dominion. He made over 200 handwritten manuscripts versions of his poem Fern Hill. I don't know if I quite can call it a poem. Um, It's a statement anyway. A friend of Dylan Thomas named Vernon Watkins wrote, The composition of his poetry, for which he used separate worksheets, would spend and would spend sometimes several days on a single line while the poem was built up phrase by phrase at great glacier-like speed. <clears throat> Another example is from the world of art, uh, musical art. Um, Sir Ignatius Jan Paderowski, a Poland's renowned pianist from 1860 to 1941. When a woman approached him and called him a genius, he said, ma'am, Before I was a genius, I was a drudge. Uh, A drudge is simply a person who does tedious work, works tirelessly. We call the the worker bee literally the drudge. Another um, is a Jewish man from Lithuania, uh, died in 1987, Mr. Heifetz, the greatest violinist of the 20th century, according to some. He began playing violin at age three, practiced four hours a day. When he was the greatest, practiced four hours a day. Um, practiced daily until he died. So somebody did the math on that, and they believe that he practiced 102,000 hours. Example from World of Music. Um, Michelangelo, Da Vinci, Tintoretto, uh, those who had multiple sketches left after they passed. In fact, uh, Da Vinci once drew a 1,000 hands. So the examples expound, uh, abound from various... World. Even the discipline and great speakers, Winston Churchill, uh, by the way, when the queen um, came into her position, Winston Churchill was the prime minister. That's how long she was. Anyway, um, he was thought of as a speaker of the century, but did you know he had a lisp? He was unable to be spontaneous in speeches. Does that surprise you if you ever heard one of his? Yet he seemingly gave impromptu remarks, but they were written out and practiced right down to his pauses and fumblings. 
He practiced in front of mirrors so that his facial expression would be just right. F.E. Smith said that Churchill spent the best years of his life writing impromptu speeches. Example from the world of inventors, Thomas Edison, he was discouraged after Mr. Bell had beaten him to the race uh, to patent the telephone. And after a thousand failures, Edison in 1879 came up with the first commercially practical incandescent electric light bulb. Did you catch that? Thousand failures. Wouldn't you give up after 759 or earlier? So he makes this observation as he applies it now to our spiritual lives. We will never get anywhere in life without discipline, and it's doubly so in spiritual matters. None of us can claim spiritual advantage, naturally seeks after God. Therefore, as a child of grace, our spiritual discipline is everything. So here's our challenge as we respond to that book. Would we actually agree with that? Is spiritual discipline everything? Doesn't that seem to make it rely on us? So we need to be careful. But we get his point, right? So it's all by grace, thankfully. God is the one who pours grace on us. God's the one who redeems us. That God is the one who gives us sanctification. And yet, isn't it our call to be disciplined? Christ is everything. And we need him. But part of what Christ gives us is his spirit, and one of the gifts of his spirit, the evidences of his spirit being in us, is self-control. Remember the fruits of the Holy Spirit, Galatians 5, 22, it's 23. The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So it's, it's not of our effort. It's a gift from the spirit, and yet isn't it called self-control? Listen, ask yourself, wait. Is it spirit-generated, or am I doing it? It's a fruit of the spirit, and yet it's called self-control. That's a beautiful marriage of the doctrines we know as sanctification, where God is working and I'm working. I am required to control myself, and yet I need the spirit to help me. So we'll allow, here's my timer, um, we'll allow Pastor Hughes to state his point too strongly without missing his point. Um, who controls you, the spirit or yourself? You have to control yourself, but yet the spirit aids us in that. As he says in the next verse, Galatians 5.24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. In that verse, we crucify the flesh, and yet wasn't it Christ who was crucified for us? So again, that, that holding together of God's sovereignty and our responsibility. Um, and then the next verse, Galatians 5.25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. So it goes on. All right, so discipline. Um, again, he bases this on 1 Timothy 4, uh, 7, train yourself for godliness. Right, I'm going on to chapter 2 now on purity. Uh, we did the intro, we did uh, Disciplines of Godly Man, number one, godliness, number, uh, chapter number two, purity. So, it's all adults here, right? <laughs> we can talk about important things. Uh, we can anyway, uh, but we just talk them a little more carefully and from the pulpit when the children are with us. But we have to talk about our world when we talk about purity, don't we? Uh, Pastor Hughes starts this chapter by making the point that sensuality in our modern American context, is not just present, but oppressive. The book is published in 1991. Has it gotten better? It's far worse today. 
This was, again, published in 1991, but here's his quote then. Uh, Professor David A.J. Richard of New York University Law School advocated freedom for hardcore pornography. He called it pornutopia, that anybody should be able to do anything. And then um, our author, uh, Pastor Hughes, applies this to the church. And he talks about the book of Corinthians, how Paul was concerned about the purity of the church in the book of Corinthians. And then Pastor Hughes takes that concept and applies it to the nature of the church in America. And these are statistics from 1988. A poll of pastors. 12% had committed adultery. 23% had sexually inappropriate acts. A poll of non-pastors but leaders in churches. 23% had an extramarital intercourse. 45% had sexually inappropriate acts. So even if you don't believe any of those statistics, or they're worse now, or a little better now, you get the point, right? Just take the general point and then think about it together. Here are some results if there's a problem of purity in the church. There's no holiness then. Wouldn't the leaders be themselves slow to discipline members? Wouldn't the church be dismissed by the watching world as irrelevant? Nothing different about them. Wouldn't we be losing then the next generation? Wouldn't we be losing people to false religions? I've heard of people who go to Islam because at least they can control themselves in some measure. So um, he has this quote then. Pastor Hughes says this, Sensuality is easily the biggest obstacle to godliness among men. It's a book written to men, so of course it applies to women as well. 1 Timothy 4, 7, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. That's the New American uh, Standard uh, Bible quote. So where do we turn for help? Um, we, we go to the Bible, right? So the, the big leaders from Scripture. You know, if I asked someone on the sidewalk to name some big leaders in, in Scripture, they'd probably say Moses and, and David and Jesus and Peter and Paul, right? So let's go to David. 2 Samuel 11, Um, maybe you've heard of David's fall in this area. A strong start, though, uh, had integrity of soul from childhood, a good heart, we're told, by God in Scripture. 1 Samuel 16, 7, the Lord looks at the heart. He was brave, didn't he attack Goliath, the the quintessential little guy against the big guy, um, 1 Samuel 17, 45 to 49. He's a poet in touch with himself and able to express himself in beautiful ways, right? The Psalms are filled with words from David. He was a leader. Uh, the country was united under him. Uh, overall, his high school class might vote him least likely to have a moral disaster. And the problem is the, there were flaws in his conduct that left, left him open to impurity. What were the flaws? We could categorize them as desensitization, relaxation, fixation, rationalization, and degeneration. So I'll go through those again really quickly and apply them to us. Desensitization is he had additional wives. How that is happening today, socially permitted sensuality. What shows are we watching now that our grandparents would turn off? Socially permitted sensuality. Second is relaxation. For David, no effort to win the war. No effort to win the war in morals either. For us, it looks like I've arrived, including on the area of moral vulnerability, I don't have to fight anymore. I don't have to be alert anymore. 
That's relaxation. Third step, fixation. At the crucial moment, which is not the first moment, mind you, at the crucial moment, David had a long or second look that became lust. In our uh, form for us, in looking, we forget to see God. God has created this person. This person belongs to God and belongs to someone else now or in the future and so on. Fixation. Third or fourth step is rationalization. David figures no harm done must not be wrong. Today, we tell ourselves, that's not so serious. We have phrases in our, our culture that tell us that, don't we? Maybe you can think of some. I won't repeat them here. But the last category then is degeneration, to indulge, to uh, cover up, to um, enter into the adultery, lies, and in fact murder. You know how that story goes with David. And the uh, application to us, ruin everything and still go into it. It's in the church. We have um, ministers who have lost their marriage, lost their children, lost their church, and they're still pursuing the wrong person. So lessons from David's fall. Also, when you look at the Ten Commandments, we could make a case where David broke all. You immediately think of the Seventh Commandment, but he actually broke all of them. He broke the first one uh, by having himself as God over God when he was not at war where he should have been. He broke the Tenth Commandment by coveting his neighbor's wife, of course. Broke the second commandment by worshiping the image of a naked woman. Broke the seventh, of course, that's the most obvious. He committed adultery with her. He broke the eighth commandment because he stole somebody else's wife. He broke the ninth commandment by bearing false witness against Uriah. He broke the third commandment when he deceived Uriah. She's taking the Lord's name in vain. He broke the sixth commandment by killing the husband, also his own subject. How do you like that? A king kills his subject. Broke the fifth commandment by bringing dishonor to his parents. Broke the fourth commandment by staying in these sins over many Sabbath days. He broke all the commands. He failed to love God and love neighbor. What's the damage? His baby died. His daughter Tamar was raped by her half-brother Amnon. Absalom came to so hate his father David that he led a rebellion with advice from Bathsheba's grandfather. Does this read like a soap opera? David's reign never regained its former stability. So, what's the will of God for you? Purity. 1 Thessalonians 4.3. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man but God who gives us his, whole, his Holy Spirit to you. You could think back of Leviticus uh, chapters 18 and 19 where the basic command is be holy. Chapter 18 of Leviticus forbids all sort of sins, specifically naming what is not to be done. I'm going to reset this. For, I've got to move on in a moment. Um, including and listing it out, adultery, incest, child sacrifice, which we'll mention in the message this morning, homosexuality, and bestiality. And then in Leviticus 19, verses 1 and 2, the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, Be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Bible scholar Leon Morris writes this, The man who carries on an act of impurity is not simply breaking a human code, nor even sinning against the God who at some point in the past gave him the gift of the Spirit. He's sinning against the God 
who is present at that moment. So in contrast to what we saw are the failures of David, what could we put in place for our purity? Accountability uh, to, to your spouse and another person. Prayer for your own purity. Especially if you're struggling in this area, ask prayer from others confidentially. Uh, memorization. Jesus used verses in his temptation. We ought to follow that. Um, your mind. Um, thinking is connected to your eyes and your talk. It long, happens in your mind and heart long before it happens in your actions with your eyes or your words or your hands. Uh, put hedges around yourself. Don't have intimate talk with the wrong person. No touching, no dining, no flirting. Uh, reality. Believe that you are not beyond doing such a thing. Don't you have the full complement of the sinful nature in you? Are you not totally depraved and then fully saved by Christ's blood? The reality of facing who you really are. And then lastly, divine awareness. It is a sin against the Lord God. And being mindful of him, even as we worship week by week, is a part of our sanctification. So, that was that. I'm going to pause. All right, we'll go on now to our doctrine part. So uh, my goal each week is to do a couple chapters in the um, character um, category, Watch Your Life, and then a couple of chapters in the Watch Your Doctrine area. And my goal was to do one through three, and I don't think I'm going to get through the third one today. Let's try to do um, chapters one and two. So starting with chapter one, now you can turn in your packet to that second page, On the top, it says, Appreciating the Gift of the Bible, Westminster Confession of Faith, Chapter 1. So, what is the main idea of Chapter 1 of the Westminster Confession of Faith? What is the one big takeaway that we're supposed to believe? Watch your beliefs. What do you believe about the Bible? Well, every um, spring around uh, Good Friday, Easter, Time Magazine, Newsweek Magazine, U.S. News and World Report all come and attack your faith. Uh, They question the historicity of the Christian belief. And so that's just a perennial thing. Uh, Just one example, but all throughout the year, our culture comes to attack the beliefs of Christians. So uh, we combat that with the original source, with the Bible itself. Um, Watch your belief about the Bible It's what we believe about the Bible. And I don't want to talk so much about the Westminster Confession of Faith. Um, I want to talk about the Bible. You know, I mean, I think what's so helpful, so instructive, um, the thing that helped me to sign up for this, um, be in this denomination as a minister here, is that the first chapter of the Westminster Confession of Faith points away from itself. It's so important to grasp this that this document, this belief statement, says that it's nothing. It says that all is in Scripture. Um, So that's the main idea. It's what we call a high view of Scripture. Uh, We we exalt God and his word around here. Um, We find it helpful to summarize. These documents are helpful, so uh, we use them in teaching and in worship even as uh, quotations and so on, but it's the scriptures, it's the scriptures, it's the scriptures. So that's what we believe. Um, And then if you look down your handout, let me summarize and then go back and highlight a few things. So we benefit from God's gift of the Bible by appreciating it. Um, You know, you you have this if you want to look at the actual uh, confession, just grab a hymnal near you. It's on page 847 in the back. Um, 
since I'm, I'm going as an overview, I've decided not to take the time to read each um, statement of the, the confession, but you, you can glance over them as I'm speaking if that helps. So we, the main idea is the, the Bible is a gift from God, and so our response is to appreciate it, and our response throughout this chapter is then to appreciate it. Number one, we appreciate being rescued. So section one uh, talks about how we would not have access to salvation were it not for Scripture. Uh, in the created order, we understand that God exists. We understand that God is faithful. He brings the sun up every morning, right? He keeps the planets in their place. He keeps your heart beating, keeps your eyes blinking, keeps your lungs working, right? We understand all of that. And you could get to the fact that there is a God, but you can't get to the fact that we are saved from our sins by his gracious gift of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, unless you have the Bible, okay? So we appreciate being rescued, um, and that's what section one covers. And then sections two through nine are in that middle sentence on my page there. We appreciate, appreciate knowing what is not attainable anywhere else. For example, section two, what to believe, section two, how to live, section three, which books are the gift, which books are not, section four, that it is official, and then on section five, <clears throat> the evidence to satisfy our reasoning capabilities. Section six, that scripture is enough. Um, They're not looking for something more beyond. Uh, Section seven, that the Bible is clear, not a puzzle. Here we're talking about the perspicuity of the scriptures. Section eight, the way to settle uh, disagreements is coming back to the Bible. And if there's disagreements between translations, come back to the original uh, Hebrew and Greek uh, scriptures. And then section nine, the unified nature of the one message of scripture, it doesn't in parts of it point to grace and parts of it point to salvation by works. It's all united in uh, pointing to salvation by grace. And so we appreciate this, the, the, the many benefits of, of Scripture. So let me go back and highlight a few things. Um, first, I want to highlight the word inspiration. So at section three, which books are the, are the gift? We enjoy the gift from God even more knowing for sure which writings are not in the gift. So you maybe have heard the word canon. The canon of scripture refers to the table of contents. When you look at your Bible and you read out which ones are in there, that's canon. That's a list of which books are in the Bible. And why do I bring that up? Because if your friend is Catholic and your friend brings their Bible to you and you read their table of contents, it reads differently. So what's our answer to that? What's a Protestant view of the table of contents of your Bible versus a Catholic view of the table of contents of your Bible? And that touches on the word inspiration. Inspired means if it's written by God, it's breathed out by God. Uh, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for uh, correction, reproof. Ah, I thought I could just quote it. There we go. I memorized it in King James as a boy, and then I've preached it in um, NIV and now recently uh, English Standard Version, and all of that is an excuse. I should be able to quote it. Okay, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God be complete, equipped for every good work. So the idea of inspiration I wanted to, to cover. So the writing of these books the 66 books in our Bible, was accomplished by a supernatural influence of the Spirit of God acting upon the spirits of the sacred writers. We're studying Jeremiah, so that's what happened with Jeremiah's book. 
It happened with Paul's 13 books. It, it happened Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Isaiah, Moses, all the books, okay? So the Holy Spirit accompanied them in all that they wrote. So we can call it dual authorship. It's written by Isaiah, and I can say it that way, and it's written by God, and I can say it that way. At every moment, we can say each in either author. So how does that work? Were the human writers just ink pens? I got one last time. I got 12 minutes left. Okay. Let me finish this thought on inspiration and didn't make a decision here. Um, are they just ink pens? So here's Moses, right? And he's writing, and somebody comes in and interrupts, yes, and his hand just keeps going. Is that how it works? Like this, just this mechanical thing? Could do that. Right? We have no doubt that God could do that. Is that how it worked? Um, no, according to our, our standard, the way this is um, written out for us, the, the reason we're uncovering it is because it's addressed here in, uh, in the third section. Were these human writers just ink pens? No. The Spirit of God, when he worked together with the author, did not violate the free operation of their faculties, their ability to think, their ability to express. Moses cared. Jeremiah was in it. Paul knew what he wanted to say, and they were in union with God in the messages that were written down. And yet God directed them in all that they wrote and secured such such an expression of it in words that it is God's word. It is without error. It is the word of Paul as Paul writes, and yet it is the word of God exactly down to the word as God would want it to be said to his churches then and his churches now. So since the Bible claims this, in the verses I just read, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, the Bible claims to be inspired. So this claim must either be true in this respect of what I just described of how it works, or it's false in all respects. How else would it work? That God, God authenticated the claims of the writers by accompanying their teaching by, as Hebrews 2, 4 says, signs and wonders and various miracles. So you have some internal claims to inspiration in the Bible, such as, thus says the Lord. How many times is that in Scripture? The mouth of the Lord has spoken. And the New Testament writers introduce Old Testament quotes by writing, the Holy Spirit says, or God says, when they're quoting what Moses wrote. So that's all just affirmation and confirmation of what we believe about inspiration, that the inspiration of the Old Testament is affirmed in the New Testament that Christ and his apostles quoted the Old Testament as infallible. And inspiration was promised to the apostles, and they claimed to have the Spirit in fulfillment of the promise of Christ. So, uh, I think with the time I have remaining, which is 10 minutes... Rather than get to chapter 2, don't judge me that I'll be behind on my first day. Um, I think what's better is if I cover a few other highlights of Scripture itself, and I can fit sections 2 and 3 in um, next week, Lord willing. I'm looking for my front page. It is... There we go. Evidences. I wanted to cover evidences. If you look at section 5, 
Uh, we appreciate knowing the evidence to satisfy our reasoning capabilities. We are more convinced and joyful because of the abundant evidence. So um, I thought this might happen. I, I think it's important uh, to cover more on um, the first chapter than on the other. So evidences. Let me ask it this way with regard to section 5, chapter 1, section 5. What are evidences within the Bible that prove it's from God? Well, there are two areas of internal evidence, intelligence and morals. And so I want to cover those briefly. It seems to be supernatural in intelligence. It's a unified book, and its unity, when you think about it, is amazing. Because it has 66 books, 40 authors, a writing period of 1,600 years. I sometimes read a magazine, and I wonder if they talk to each other. And they work in the same building, or they used to, right? The authors of a compilation or a composition have to have a ton of work to talk to each other, and they still don't necessarily line up. This is absolutely astounding. It's supernatural and intelligence. It's flawless. Even though all of it was written by hand, before computers and copiers and printing press, it's been produced and copied and distributed since then, but it was produced before all of that. Further evidence is that it is without error in any facts of history of any other kind. The content shows incredible knowledge of what man is like under various circumstances, and it offers solutions to the darkest of man's problems ever recorded in world history. So the argument there of evidence of intelligence. Second evidence, then, of the Bible being from God is its morals. It's supernatural in its morals. It sets forth a high view of God and his law that's truly exalted. It's set forth the same way that it is enforced in life. It, it seems to have power over human consciences. It's still, always, number one bestseller. And it influences people. It seems to have a lasting impact upon individuals, couples, marriages, schools. People either read it and are convinced of sin, convicted of sin, or they do not read it precisely because they are in sin and do not desire to be convicted of it. No other book has such widespread or long-lasting influence on mankind. My, my grandfather, before he passed, um, gave me a Bible, and he wrote in the, in the inside what he always used to say to me. Either sin will keep you from this book, or this book will keep you from sin. And you'll forgive me for, you know, examining what my grandpa said. It's not actually the book itself that keeps you from sin. It's Christ by his redemption and his Holy Spirit. But get the point that it's God's word and it's his, his living word. So the Holy Spirit's influence. All right. I wanted to cover the, the um, section six where this phrase, rule of faith and practice. If you haven't heard that, it's common across reformed, the reformed world to hear this phrase, the rule of faith and practice. So it's in section six. I want to un uh, uncover that. What is meant by this statement, this phrase, that the Bible is complete as a rule of faith and practice? What it means is that it tells us what to believe, rule of faith, and it tells us what to do, rule of practice. The very things we're saying in this course, watch your life and doctrine. It tells us what to live, how to live, what to say, what not to say, what to think, what not to think, what to do, what not to do. And it also tells us what to believe, what not to believe. So no problems or situations can arise for people or for institutions 
for which those solutions, for which the moral directions are not sufficiently and even abundantly covered by the Bible. Does the Bible really claim that? That it's complete for faith and for life even in our modern world? Yes. The, the whole design of the Bible professes to lead us to God. If we are to be led to God, that leading must come from his own Bible. And I know that's circular, but it has to be because he's the origin. To claim to lead people to God and then to miss a step is to be false. So if there weren't people all around the world coming to faith in Christ and becoming Christians and converts, then you could call it into question. So let me try to illustrate. If, if I told you you could cross a creek and keep your shoes dry by stepping from one large stone to another, but then one of the stones is missing, could you keep your shoes dry? Then that was my statement about keeping your shoes dry. Was it true or not? If it's not true, then it's false, right? So the same is applying to the scriptures. Since it claims to lead us to God, it must actually be able to lead us to God or it's false. So if we are to be led to God, all that leading must come from the Bible. How can you say the Bible leads us to God and then go to other sources to lead you to God? It has to come from the Scriptures itself. We can't be expected to learn one crucial part of the way of salvation from some other source. That's, that's why we are, um, we are against... Book of Mormon, uh, uh, the Quran, and all that sort of thing. Jehovah's Witnesses, Bible, um, the Apocrypha, the second blessing of the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues, and so on. Um, we want to stick with the, the historic written, written scriptures. So the only other things I would have um, covered a little bit are illumination as opposed to inspiration, how, how God actively now by his Holy Spirit illumines the scriptures so that as we read it, we come to understand. So it's the Spirit working with the scriptures that's so important. Um, people assume that in the Pentecostal church they follow the Spirit, and in the Reformed church we just have the Bible without the Spirit. That's oh, so not true. We need the Spirit uh, to illumine the scriptures. And then the last thing I, I would have said is a per- perspicuity, the clarity of scripture, that it is able to present in a way that we understand, and young people can also read it and understand. It's very clear, especially in what it presents with regard to salvation. And then on your handout, the third, line, the third point is we appreciate relating to God live, and that's part of what I'm saying right now. It's exhilarating to consider the concept of live communication that the Spirit of the living God speaks to us now in the living Word. It's not true of any other book. All the other books, either the author is still living or not, but all, the, all you have is the book itself. But as you study the scriptures, you, maybe you've experienced that in a Bible study or in worship service, that you thought you understood the passage and then God illumines it further. It's the work of his, of his Holy Spirit. So we have a high view of scripture. Um, we appreciate knowing that this is a tremendous gift from, from God. I'm going to stop there. Comments, questions? <clears throat> All right, so this should take you through <clears throat> the whole course. And so next week, Lord willing, we'll uh, pick up and do um, Disciplines of a Godly Man, chapters 3 and 4, which are the topics of uh, the next two, marriage and, and fatherhood. <clears throat> Even if you're not 
married and not a, a parent, I think it's important for all of us to know that. We'll cover those briefly. And then picking up with <clears throat> chapters uh, 2 and following of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Watch your life and watch your doctrine. All right, let's go in prayer.